Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics, and we've got the perfect example of that tonight with a brand new series, Fisher, the debut series from Vault Comics, and we've got the writer Tim Daniel on the show to talk that, but before I introduce Tim, I want to kick it to my co-host, Alana, how you doing? Hey, um, so I, I am edified at the thousands and thousands of people who have been standing up uh, saying that immigrants in our country are our neighbors and our friends and ourselves and that we're not going to put up with any of these horrible raids. So I'm going to take my two seconds at the start of the show to <laughs> encourage folks to, yeah, exactly, to encourage folks to get on, um, get on the case. And uh, I have, through um, a community organization, Make the Road, we have a, a hotline network we're setting up um, so folks can find out about pro-immigrant solidarity actions where they live. And uh, all you need to do to get on it is text the word ROAD, R-O-A-D, ROAD, like the Road Warrior, to 52886. That's 52886. And then you can be in the loop around actions happening where you live in your community so you can support people. That is my pitch, again. The word ROAD, after our our organization's name, which is Make the Road, but I just can say ROAD, like the Road Warrior, and um, 52886. And I think it's particularly topical, right, given the comic we'll yes. be talking about in just a few minutes. And that's what I was going to say. I was like, oh, that's like the perfect move to our topic for the night and the series we're going to talk about. Uh, so before I introduce our guest for the, the show, I want to talk about the series Fisher, which I said was the debut series from Vault Comics. Uh, it's part horror, but it's very topical in that it talks about race relations and society and barriers, whether or not actual physical or in this case, giant rifts that have opened up with demon sort of things. Uh, the, the short description of the comic is El Sueno, Sueno, Texas, was a single street town withering under the shadow of the Mexico-U.S. barrier. Then the pavement split, and a massive crack spread from one end to the other, rapidly swallowing El Sueno whole. Young couple uh, Avery Lee Olmos and Hark Wright fight to escape the mysterious sinkhole in the male of violent force that begins from its depth. Uh, so, as I said, we've got writer Tim Daniel joining us. Uh, he's done tons of stuff, like the, the Walking Dead Survivor's Guide for Skybound Entertainment, Enormous, which was, the I think, the first series that I uh, knew him from, which is also kind of a disaster horror uh, comic. Um, he's also done Burning Field and Curse, both for uh, Boom, which also... Uh, uh, Burning Field, definitely. I don't remember Curse quite as much, but they both are very you know, politically charged and looking at society. I guess you can make the case with Curse. Uh, and then Skin for Mike, Monkey Brain. So done really, really cool series uh, all across the board. And latest is Fisher with Vault Comics. So welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brett. Thanks, Alana. Uh, happy to be on tonight. Yeah, so... You know, first up, awesome series. Um, don't want to kick, you know, kiss your butt too much. Uh, so the, the first, always <laughs> <laughs> that. I was like, oh, I absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it. And it's like, oh, I just sound like a fanboy who's going to go on for like an hour kissing the brown nosing. We uh, <laughs> we all we all have we all have that, don't we? I mean, I have my own. I, I have my own for sure. Um, yeah, it's kind of part of the whole cycle of like enjoying entertainment and. I, I definitely look. I'm going to go to ECCC in a couple of weeks, and I, I, I want to meet Millie Bobby Brown. That's I'll probably fanboy harder yeah. than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and probably reasonable. This this is when I you know the, a lot of I talk you know we we love politics, we love comics, and there's some great comics that like mix the two together. And not only does this do that, but it's really topical. It's one of those like. I have to ask is that first question, uh, you know, considering everything that's going on in the world today, like how long have you been working on this series uh, before, you know, it was released? Wow. Well, you know, I'm a, even though I, I've published a few times, as you mentioned, some of the titles, um, I work a day job. And so the process of bringing things, you know, to print it is sometimes long. Um, and in this case, this is one of them. Um, Fisher, probably around 2013, 2014, um, really kind of had the idea, went through a couple of different creative teams, um, and, and, you know, got real close to getting it off the ground. 
and getting it ready to go beyond pitch and into, you know, production to, to make it. And for whatever reason, you know, schedules change, commitments change, creative teams change. Anyway, so I've been working on Fisher now since probably 2015. And in one form or another, that was always, the story was roughly the same as it is now. Um, but, you know, the, the catalyst, I guess, the, the thing that changed everything for me, obviously, was the election um, and some of the rhetoric that was coming out during the election, during the campaign. And that really sort of hit a, a peak. I got to uh, go to La Mole Comic Con in Mexico City. It was my first time in Mexico. But I had grown up in California. And, you know, obviously the population of California is very diverse. Uh, its proximity to Mexico, obviously, um, means that, you know, there's a good mixture uh, of people. And um, so I'd grown up, you know, in, in an environment where I was very comfortable. A lot of my coworkers, friends, teachers, um, you know, were either Mexican immigrant or first generation Mexican-American, and um, anyway, it was my first trip to Mexico, and um, I got off the airplane. I was getting in the car with a fellow American creator. We, you know, we, we dispensed of all the necessities, conversion of money, do you need something to drink, where's the bathroom, you know, how do you say hola, <laughs> you know, basic things like that. We got in the car, first question, this is March 2015, first question that came out of the the mouths of our guides, our translators, was, so how do you feel about Donald Trump and how do you feel about the law? And it was one of those moments where the frustration, I guess, the disappointment of, of having that firsthand, having to face that question, and obviously you could probably already tell it's not something I'm comfortable with, the, the whole idea of it. Um, the band, the wall. It was in that moment, it changed my whole idea of what I wanted to say with Fissure. And it really kind of crystallized it. It was, it was always going to be kind of what it was, but it really brought it together. And um, that was it. That was the moment where I just went, wow, okay, this, I know what this story is. And it really kicked it into gear. And when I came home, I, I just wrote furiously um, after that. Hmm. So it's taken, what, three and a half, four years to get to this point, roughly. Um, but, you know, well worth it, well worth the journey. I mean, for me, like, you know, this is a central metaphor of the story is so apt. Um, you know, essentially this is a town where there is a gaping fissure that sort of opens up and, like, gobbles people whole, representing the divide between um, essentially like white and Latino people who are living in the area. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like such a smart idea to just literally animate this monster. I mean, there, you know, we look at so much of the great monster movies, like the Godzilla and all of those Japanese movies were like animating like the horror of the atomic bomb. And, and you've really gone ahead and just straight up in a very like literal and perfect way <laughs> animated a horror of our times like, and just made that into the monster. I, I just think that's so bold and smart. And I, I love that this is coming out, you know, right now when people are really talking about this issue uh, and understanding how dire it would be for folks if it came to pass. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I mean, I, I'm going to say thank you, but I wish we weren't, you know, having that conversation. I wish it wasn't yeah, a thank you. Sure. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll put it that way. I wish it was um, completely speculative. Like, it was, this was designed as yeah. speculative fiction, essentially, right? Yes, I was talking to a friend the other day, and um, he's a fellow creator. He's an artist, Tony Gregori, and he was saying, you know, I, I just know how long you've been working on this and the idea that you, you know, you had this inkling. And I just was like, that's no, I am not proud of that. I am not proud of that, and I'm not proud of that reality. Um, I, you know, whether it's Burning Fields or whether it's been Curse, Enormous, you know, I tried to... I try to make it personal, not necessarily injecting my own politics or my own ideology at all. I want people to form their own ideas and obviously have their own thoughts and reactions. But it's it's hard it's hard for me to want to tell a story unless it means something to me. 
just personally. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, and I'm sure, I, you know, look, I'm not special in that. Every writer probably say the same thing. Um, anybody that creates something is probably going to say the same thing. But in this case, it really, it, I don't know. There, there was something that got so far under my skin about that whole idea of, of painting, you know, the rhetoric through the course of the election was, you know, painting people, whole swaths of people, whole races of people, whole countries in a certain light. Oh, they're criminals. Oh, they're the root of our, you know, all of our societal ills. They're the rapists. They're the thieves. They're the job stealers. Oh, come on. Come on now. That, that you know, that, I was, you know, I'm being pretty blatant to just say that's just, that's just false, patently false. And so it was exasperating. And uh, I'm just glad that I have this outlet to deal with some of that frustration because you can probably hear it in my voice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, but, you know, California. Is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know, you're from California, and the story is very much set in terms of, the, the, uh, you know, that particular kind of border town in Texas. What kind of research and work did you do preparing for this particular story? Well, I think, part, well, uh, honestly, the research kind of, um, you know, it just began in a, in a couple of different forms. One, uh, going to visit my um, my in-laws who live in Tucson. And so kind of getting a sense of, of you know, the environment of Arizona never really having been there uh, until the last several years um, and getting a sense of the attitudes and the division of people. It's very interesting. Um uh, kind of seeing how everybody kind of keeps to their own spaces in a way. And mm-hmm. um, that was part of it. <laughs> Believe it or not, part of it also came came along from Sicario, the film Sicario, which I believe is in Juarez. And yep. um, that, that whole idea of like sharing this space, like being able to cross this invisible line, whether it's marked by a fence or, you know, uh, it, it, the idea of just like being able to cross over so closely country to country and the idea of a border town and what that must actually be like was very interesting to me. So that's where the research kind of, kind of kicked off from. And then I just started looking at maps and reading stories um, from some of like newspapers published online and, you know, just getting a flavor of what is it like, um, you know, never really having spent that much time um, other than a couple of short visits to Texas and a couple of drive throughs that seemed like they lasted for days on end. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was my experience with, with Texas. So I just had to kind of get a flavor from, you know, really reading online, to be honest. How, how did the series evolve over time? Because it sounds like you kind of had this general sense of what you wanted to do, and then the election like really shifted it and solidified your idea. So, what were some of the specifics that that changed from like the initial to to that point? Um, I think it was the original idea was born out of just witnessing all these sort of reports kind of floating around the internet of uh, sinkholes, and I think one of the biggest ones that caught my attention was the Siberian. It was a, a large, two two or three rather large. Uh, sinkholes reported. And I started just thinking about how we have these natural occurrences. They're easily explained <clears throat> and, you know, by science <laughs> um, that, you know, it's a release of gases um, or it's a, a tectonic plate shift, something of that nature. It's usually easily explained, although it seems like such an extraordinary phenomenon. And I thought, well, what if we just take all that science for granted and what if it weren't that at all? So that was the initial ideas. What if something literally wanted to swallow a town whole and not just the structures and the buildings, but the people and what would lure the people down and why? So that was, that was kind of interesting to me. That was sort of the beginning of it. Um, There was always this border town. I wanted a remoteness to it where people, simply were cut off um, from help. Like, and, and so remote that no one would give a shit. That people would just say, well, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't miss El Sueño. It's just, it's gone. You know, we, we never paid attention to it to begin with. So there was always that. 
and really nothing much changed until and you know until the election came and um until I started hearing all that that language and 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 hearing all that rhetoric and to see a lot of folks want to adapt that same sort of nationalist viewpoint um that isolationist viewpoint and so that began to shape the themes and that began to shape the attitudes of the characters that's probably the biggest thing that changed over time was that they were reflecting things that were bigger and maybe not as personal. They still have their own endeavors, troubles, you know, but they were reflecting things that were more current and topical. That's probably the only thing that really, really evolved. The wall was there. Everything was there um, for quite some time. So it was just interesting that that seemed to be, coming together at a time where the book was getting ready uh, to, to hit stamps. Interesting. Now, some of the story is written in Spanish, and some of it's in English, mm-hmm. and what's been really interesting was that you don't sort of do a running back-and-forth translation of it. And I, you know, I understand Spanish very badly, but, like, I do understand some <laughs> Spanish. So for me, I was like, I can follow along. There's, like, one word I don't know. That's cool. I can look that word up. But it was an interesting creative choice to sort of just, like, go and, and do it that way and sort of have the experience of the reader be this incomplete understanding. I mean, but, again, I also recognize, like, I spend a lot of time around Spanish speakers and I have some familiarity with Spanish, so I'm not coming at it completely, you know, at a loss like some folks would be. And I was sort of wondering, like, what made you Me. go in that particular decision? Like Brett, yeah. How do you speak no Spanish? Uh, well, we'll get there later. But um, um yeah. you know, like ha, you know, how does that how does that shape? You know, that's an that's an artistic choice. And like, what was I have some thoughts about why that might be, but I'd love to hear from you about that. Um. Well, <laughs> it was kind of similar to what I did in, in Enormous and what we did for Burning Fields. Um, Burning Fields, um, the letter Jim Campbell, he had a great trick, which um he just used symbols to t- kind of instruct us as to what language the um, the speaker was mm. speaking. So it was, it was, it was in English. Uh, the font might change, but the symbol at the top of the balloon would tell us, Oh, that's Arabic or, Oh, this is like some other language, some other worldly language that we're, we're not even familiar with the tongue. And so it always, you know, it, Comics have changed since I was a 12-year-old and when I first discovered them. And as a, almost a 50-year-old man, you know, now I, uh, you know, I recognize that, that change both in tone and in subject matter. And, and part of it would be to also the realism that seems to be infused into, in, in the comics and storytelling. And so, you know, we don't walk around with translators next to us, you know, and, and, the technology hasn't evolved quite yet to the point where we can just press a button and get that translation. So to me, it just seems natural that if people are speaking Spanish or Arab or Russian or whatever, um, that's what we're reading. And we can go and figure that out if we need to. If it's, if the script is structured properly, what the characters uh, reply or react to should inform us as to what that initial line delivered would would be what they were saying. And so that just took some, I hope, some careful thought so that it comes through to the reader. But I, the, the decision, 100% conscious, the refusal to translate it, even though I did have a tra- I do have a translation for it, obviously. Um, I didn't want it on the page, and, and neither did Adrian Wassel, the editor-in-chief at fault, because I think we're of the same mindset that, you know, when people are speaking that language, that's what they're saying. And and we need to just train ourselves to hear that. So the the decision though really was based upon um folks notice this, is that we're we're on the US side of the ball when the story begins in Fisher. But every single mm-hmm. person, the militia, <laughs> the 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 illegal immigrants that are that are, have come up through this tunnel with a coyote guide to, to take them across the border, uh beneath the wall, everybody's speaking Spanish. I mean, here they are in America, and I was, I was kind of kind of driving home a little point there that at this point in our history and our time, we're kind of you know it's, in, it's inextricable. You just can't just disassociate 
um, and say, you know, here's this wall now, get out, and we're, we're done with this, you know, we're done with this culture, we're done with you people, you know, and, and put quotes on that. That was the idea. Hmm. I mean, in, in the context, you know, in which I, in which I, I work with a lot of undocumented people, like, is mm-hmm. the significance of that language of, like, you know, this, that, like, people aren't illegal and that it's, their laws exist, but it doesn't change one's status as a human being. Um, you know, people can be in America and not have, like, legal documentation from certain sources, but that doesn't make their, like, presence or existence itself illegal. Um, it's something that, right. like, is really important from how we talk with the media and everybody else. And, yeah, I mean, I think, like, I, I, I liked the idea of having it be in Spanish because it was sort of, like, giving you the, the opportunity to sort of have that moment of, like, oh, oh, okay, I see what's happening, but it's not always completely clear to me, and I'm going to have to work at it, which is sort of what you experience when you're when you're traveling. And, I mean, obviously for folks who are really bilingual, I'm sure it's probably gratifying to just have that in a one space Well, you know, when I, when, I, when I was growing up in California and, you know, when I was in my late teens and working, I worked in restaurants throughout southern, or I'm sorry, northern central California, and sometimes I, I was the only native English speaker in, in, in the cook staff. And yeah. I could be surrounded by four or five different, you know, fellow cooks, prep cooks, um, and everybody speaking a different language. And it wasn't just Mexican. It was, it was, there was, you know, or Spanish. It was, excuse me. It was, it was different. Um, it could be Filipino, you know, it could, it mm-hmm. could be a number of different languages. And I was, you know, often I was saying, okay, t- wait, tell me what it was you just said. You know, like, yeah. I, I want to know, like, I want to know. I was just curious. Just naturally, it didn't, it didn't intimidate me. It didn't frighten me. It didn't make me feel as if I didn't belong. I wanted to know. I felt it was an advantage mm-hmm. for me to know. So I, I've never felt uncomfortable, you know, in that situation. The the thing that actually surprised me about it is, I mean, I took years of Spanish and I can't speak a lick of it and I barely can understand reading <laughs> it. Like I know a couple of, I just, I'm horrible with foreign languages. Like I can do everything else, whatever part of the brain that allows people to pick up foreign languages. I'm just completely missing it. Um, but the thing that I thought was really interesting while reading it was I still understood what was being said based off of the situations and the reactions. And while I might not have had it like word for word translation, I like I understood it. I totally understood it. And, and to me, that was it was really, really impressive. And there's been a lot of comics that I've read that have had other languages in it. But I think this was the first that I, I would sit there and say, you know, I, I could understand it fluently to a point, which you know, blew me away, and it really impressed me. Well, mm. you know, credit to credit to Pato, you know, artist Pato del Pesce, who is Argentinian. So, you know, it's it's not a it's not a it's not a Mexican Spanish that he's speaking, obviously, but he did help quite a bit in making sure that the language, you know, um, was proper in a sense, and certainly with verbs. Which, look, I'm not fluent. You know, I couldn't have a conversation with you. I'm not even going to pretend. But, um, you know, he was he was important to that as well as his art. You know, it, you know, you look mm-hmm. at some of the expressions and the gestures that the characters are making, the acting of the characters, and I think that really helps to convey, you know, the intent behind the line or the emotion, particularly with Abuela. You know, she's kind of cantankerous and just just had enough of all these people really <laughs> and so you can kind of get that sense from her um what she might be saying and it might not be pleasant so writing for abuela so it was really fun she and was Pato really executed fun. it perfectly mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. she'll be around the a little while longer great. i mean one of He's, the things i mean he did, he did the he did the color work as well didn't he yes in fact he he did everything um he mm. did you know the the, the art um uh, the colors and the lettering, and it became you know that's that's a lot to ask of any one individual, and so <laughs> and you know I I'm okay with that you know particularly when people want to take that on a collaborator wants to take it on but you know in reality there's 
there's Darren Bennett, and he is an Eisner award-winning letterer. And so it, it made... It made good sense, you know, <laughs> to not only use uh, Darren's talents, um, but to, to alleviate some of that workload and, and responsibility from Pato because there's a lot to ask for uh, from him. Oh, yeah. And uh, so he was reluctant to let that go, but when he saw what Darren was doing, I think he was very, very happy at how it turned out, and uh, I, I know I was. And so, um, you know, Pato is extraordinary, and I'd much rather him, you know, be able to focus – um, on the line work and the, the colors because he, he yeah. experimented, mm-hmm. experimented with like four or five different treatments before he decided on that. And so it was lovely. The color work Incredible. is so good on this book. Like the color yes. of the fissure and the way it lights the whole scenes and the sort of like the neon quality. The, the color work <laughs> on this book is really excellent. It's just some of the best colorist stuff I've seen like, it is, I would definitely put this in, like, the best color work I've seen for the uh, – it's weird to say this year because it's only February, but, like, whatever. The past 12 months, it's, <laughs> but it's really it's outstanding color work. It's not but, yeah, well, chance, hopefully yeah. Pato will listen to this and he'll hear that. And he's, he's, he's one of those professionals that – this is his first full comic here in the United States, um, but he has done a, a lot of work for heavy metal and, you know, shorts – four to eight pages. Um, but um, he's the type of professional that he takes every note, but then he takes it to heart, too. Not only does he execute it, you know, uh, but he takes it to heart, too. And, you know, it, it was the kind of thing where after about the third or fourth iteration of those colors where he was doing different, you know, using different techniques, it's watercolor, it was a muted palette, it was this popping, vibrant, crazy, oversaturated power. I kept pushing the saturation out, saying, let's, let's really go nuts, and he would bring me back in. You know, by the end of it, when he finally turned in, like, what was became the final, you know, pass uh, for Fissure that went to print, I was, I was like, okay, let the artist artist, and I'll stand over here and, and write my scripts, because this guy is amazing. Yeah, I think like the sort of uh, there's like definitely something of like a B movie, like fifties horror glow to the colors. Like I think that that influence is really in there in a way that I like. And the town itself is definitely a place out of time um, in terms of everybody's clothing and the way the buildings are. Like it could really be anywhere, anytime, almost. Definitely, and you know, we took we had a bunch of references, a big package of references for what what is El Sueño, what does it look like, you know, and it, it was really just kept confining it and shrinking it, and you know, the, the rest of that, Pato took upon himself, you know, and um, I just again I stepped back and said, okay, and he just kept turning in these pages, and uh, there was there was no reason to want to change this, and then at all and it's not something I normally do anyway with, with my collaborators but um, you know when people when I hear these 1950s the B-movie monster movie vibe yes that's ex- I mean I, I, I wish I could hug Pato because that's exactly what it was we were hunting for so uh, he nailed it I mean really is there I, you know no, I've read a lot of your your previous stuff and, and some of the other series that are current going going on, um, like Enormous, mm-hmm. Curse, uh, Burning Field, Atoll, like it all it's all kind of in that same genre of, of a horror um disaster sort of comics and, and some are you know different extents of all that. Is there something that like really drives mm-hmm. you to that genre to tell your stories that you know something about it you enjoy? Um well I love I mean, I love it. You know, I, I since I was probably 10, 12 years old, I've sort of been saturated by that. And, you know, I grew up watching Creature Features on Friday nights or Saturday nights and, um, you know, in the Bay Area. And, you know, each each week was a different, you know, type of, as you said, the B-movie, you know, the B-movie, B-horror. And then, of course, you know, in the 80s, Carpenter's films um, that sort of took that and, and elevated it beyond. You know, Carpenter, to me, Stephen King, that type of storytelling that takes something somewhat familiar to us, you know, like a, a small beach resort town or 
um, you know, uh, a family taking a hike in the woods and then, young, you know, the young daughter getting off the trail and, and lost on the day hike. Those types of stories, to me, are the, the most frightening. Um, and so mine, I guess, have tended to become a little bit larger than that, maybe not necessarily the intent of them, but um, they've just taken on a life of their own that way in, in writing them. And um, it's, it's just something that's always interested me. I, I'm most entertained, you know, by the spectacle and then that whatever's beneath, that subtext beneath that is being explored, you know, Alana, as you mentioned earlier, with the um, the idea of the monster as the atomic bomb and the evolution of the unknown, the evolution of the monster, you know, throughout horror. Um, that's always very interesting to me. And it's so pliable. You can do so much with it in terms of storytelling. It's it's like a bottomless pit. And so I guess I just keep going back there. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, you know, the thing that I think of when it comes to like sci-fi and even horror is that they, some of the ones that I love the most and where I think it works the most is the ones that explore something that's going on in society. Like it's not just a, you know, people getting killed or we're just going to go to some planet. Like there's, there's a message and it's, and it's an allegory for something like what, what is it about those, that sort of uh, genre and storytelling that you think like, do you think works really well? And, and it's clearly something that you're, you know, you've been doing with, with your series as well. Um, you know, what kind of draws you to that? Mm, I, I, I think it's the pliability of it. As I was mentioning, the idea is so elastic. You know, you can, we can, we could just spend hours making a list and, you know, uh, movies, novels, television shows, even, you know, look at, look at the popularity of stranger things. And, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of see what, why it, it, it's a mirror. And it, but it's, oddly enough, like Stranger Things, it's like the upside down, too. It, you know, it reflects society's current concerns. But it does it in a way that we don't quite recognize it at first. And maybe we shouldn't, right? We, we kind of do want mystery and discovery and uh, in those stories. That's what fascinates me as a reader as a viewer, and I think as, a, as someone who's trying to, you know, write these stories or, or create something, that's equally fascinating to me. Um, you know, and so I think it, it's that pliability. You know, it's so elastic, it's so malleable, um, that genre, you know, and I, it, it's just, it can be 1950, 1980, or 2017, and here we are using the same genre to tell and examine some of the most frightening aspects that our society is capable of, you know, manifesting. So I don't think that will ever change. You know, 40 years from now, people will still be doing that, telling those stories, using this genre, horror, horror sci-fi, to really hold the mirror up so that we look, you know, look into it and recognize ourselves in the monster that peers back at us. Nice. Um. Yeah. Is there is there like a, a, a like a, a, a issue that you've you've kind of wanted to take on or you thought about maybe doing a series for that you haven't yet? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple kind of lurking in the background, and you know, honestly, I never, you know, I I, I guess I sound like a pretty serious dude, but. <laughs> you know, I do love my B horror, right? I do love Godzilla. I love the the man in the suit, mm. or you know, I yeah. love all that. And, and I don't want to get you know too carried away with it. <clears throat> but yes, there's definitely a couple of other topics, I suppose. But I won't. I don't feel comfortable yet just talking about <laughs> them. But you know, let's just say yes. Definitely, there's more, and there will be more. Um, you know what they are off the top of my head. Um, there may be some gender, um, maybe something along the lines of, um, interesting. Yeah. Just, um, gender, sexuality. Um, uh, so yeah, those, those may be explored down the road and, you know, there's stories that again, have been sitting, you know, kind of in a drawer changing, you know, tucked away in a hard drive changing, um, through time, um, 
and maybe when the time is right, they'll they'll finally bust out of there, and I can get them done. Is there? Have you, as a creator? I mean, obviously, there are people who are unaware of the history of entertainment and specifically comics, and feel like there's politics shouldn't be in in comics at all. You know, clearly, people who don't actually know the history of of comics and storytelling and all that, but you know, do you as a creator worry about that that blowback at all, or is it just a I'm here to tell a a good story? If you like it, great. If you have this attitude, you know, obviously it's not for you. Whatever. Well, I mean, look, I'm not going to begrudge anybody that just wants to disconnect their brain for you yeah. know 20 minutes or two hours or even the better part of an afternoon, you know, or an evening binging through Netflix. I mean, you know, on something that we recognize as pure entertainment. I, I, you know, I don't want, I don't want to say to those folks, Oh, you're, you know, you're not do your fun, your, your escapism. At the same time though, I, I do, I do want my stories, the ones that I select to, to enjoy, read, view and write. I want them to mean something. I want them to be memorable in that way. I don't want to be didactic. I don't want to beat people over the head. But I do want it to kind of stick around for a little while. I want it to mean something. And I want it to be an actual story. <laughs> and not just a concept. Um, and sometimes I do see that. You know, it's not just confined to comics. It's in, it's in other forms of entertainment where eventually you kind of look at what you're taking in and you say, well, what, is this, what does this mean? You know what? What sort of, I, I, for lack of a better term, what, like what? What sort of intellectual or emotional caloric value does this have? I, I love a good Big Mac once in a while, no problem at all. But uh, at the same time, I think a good balanced diet, you know, to continue hmm. that metaphor, um, is important. Yeah. I have a four-year-old daughter, and you know, I get to read her storybooks at story time, and. You know, Olivia's little, you know, 20-page picture books have just as much morality <laughs> in them as some of the best, you know, stories that adults consume. And and there's a reason why. It, that's throughout time we've practiced that art. And there's a reason why those exist to help us. They're our compass. And we need to listen to them. Um, and hopefully we are. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I want to have fun. I do, as much as the next person. Um, and I want everyone to, to enjoy that. And But at the same time, I think we can tell a good story. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's definitely... There's a, definitely a place for both. I, I always It always drives me nuts where people say that there is no place for one of them. <laughs> When it's clearly oh, I, not historically correct. That's just, uh, you know, people just say, get out, you know, uh, the pop star shouldn't talk about politics or, yeah. you know, the politician shouldn't say that they love Star Trek or, oh, come <laughs> on. As if, as if somehow we're not suddenly human beings. I mean, you know, as if, as if we didn't all know for the last eight years that Barack Obama probably enjoyed all types of entertainment that most of us enjoyed. You know, he was nerd. Whether, Especially right? Spider-Man, and, and, which he has been very clear about. And so Conan. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Right. Here's the thing, too. We we already know our new president um, is in, enjoys cable news. And great news <laughs> for him. Yeah, I guess that's his form of entertainment. Um, he likes reality shows. Go figure. Um, so, yeah. I mean, no. Politics belongs. Ideology belongs. Theology belongs. Exploration of mm-hmm. Christ belongs. I mean, mm-hmm. or whatever deity it is that you, you believe in. I mean, write those stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's ludicrous. I mean, one of my favorite stories of all time is Brian K. Vaughn's Pride of Baghdad. I mean, talk yeah. about, like, running so many things through a filter, you know, and, and I read that with my daughter. We cried, you know, several years ago, but... You know, we cried, and um, not my infant daughter, my teen daughter. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's amazing what you can do um, and to bring that forth. Absolutely, politics belongs in stories just like anything else. 
One of the, you know, we're only looking at the first issue right now, so I don't actually have a ton of information about, like, how the story progresses, but it sort of sounds like you've got two co-leads, so to speak, right? You've got you've got Hark and you've got uh, Avery Lee, and, mm-hmm. you know, you're, so you're writing um, the story from these two different perspectives, these people whose worlds are shaved very different ways, and, you know, I know that a lot of different, uh, a lot of a lot of writers have, different approaches for how they want to uh, do research or not in some cases um, and how they're going to be when they're, when they're telling stories that are from the perspective of, or from the first person voice of um, characters who aren't the same race or gender or orientation as them, et cetera, same nationality. Um, and I was wondering what your approach was to that in the context of the story, since like, you know, the, the, na- the, like the nature of racial identity is like a, a really big piece of the story here. Hmm. You know, that's, that's a great, that is a great question. And I think in this case, um, you know, Burning Fields had two leads and they were, they're very different. Dana Atkinson was an American detective and a bond facade was an Iraqi investigator. And so you had these two distinct voices and they, you know, they were just distinct personalities to begin with. Fissure with Avery Lee and Hark, they are bound together through this unborn child. And I wanted to figure out, that was that was really the key, was the unborn child. I, I, wanted, um, I wanted to feel like there was two halves in Avery Lee and Hark, but together, both in voice and in action. Um, and, and, uh, you know, without spoiling too much, I, w- I wanted to figure out how how to convey to the reader survival will happen if they're inseparable, if they stay together, if if they literally stay together. If they don't, you know, what's forthcoming then is inevitable. And so, I don't know if that answered your question per se, but it was trying to figure out for me kind of how to how to combine them into to one. So that there wasn't necessarily a dominance um, or, or, you know, um, a voice that wasn't as significant as the other. It was that there was a bit of a baton pass back and forth. There was a, a real good teamwork that they kind of come together. Hmm. I, I'm not sure if I'm articulating this really well, but that was the idea with with those two. Well, I mean, I guess that's my question is sort of like, you know, like you, you're talking about a character in terms of Avery um, who's, you know, perpetually judged by people because she's seen as being an immigrant, even though we know that, like, obviously tons of Latino people have lived in those areas since before the borders right. were even located where they are, right? I was right. always like, no, we're not immigrants. The border changed. Um, but, like, <laughs> you know, regardless of the fact, like, um, you know, somebody who's viewed by the white people of the town as being an immigrant, whether or not that's the case, and um, and like that 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 perspective is like something which is like a central part of the story that's being told here. And you know, like and 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 you arrive sort of coming at it, um, you know, actually, I, uh, you know, as people who aren't uh, Latino or who aren't from the immigrant community those particular immigrant communities, even if we spent like a lot of time around them, um, you know, we have, a, we have a different perspective on that because it's not what we've actually lived. You know, I couldn't, I was thinking about this today because I was writing some thoughts on it and um, as part of, uh, as part of a, a written interview. And I was really trying to think about you just, just to, for a moment to think if someone actually came to my door and said to me, you need to leave. If I had to leave Missoula, Montana, where I live, you know, whether it was threat of death, threat of imprisonment, you name it, right? Some some threat, threat of economic disaster, threat of natural disaster. If I was forced to leave, what, what would I actually think and feel? How could I actually begin to understand, you know, folks that have been, you know, forced to leave and, and, and you know, whether it's for one of those many different reasons I just listed, and 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 they're fleeing uh, often just just for for life itself, just for self preservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. What would that really, really feel like? And you know what? I, I'd be totally lying to say I understand that at all. 
um, I've never even, you know, really come close to having to feel that. I, I, I may have been economically stressed out at times, you know, uh, working my way through college or, um, but no one's ever come to me, banged on my door and said, you know, off you go now, or, or we'll kill you, or we'll imprison you, or we'll ruin you financially, or, you know, whatever, or your house is going to wash away, or we'll put bullets, through, you know, through your living room. Um, that, that has never been a part of my thought process. So for Avery Lee, the character, being a first generation, born in America, and, and her backstory is one that, you know, her, her mother has returned to Mexico, leaving her mm. to take care of her abuela. So, you know, here she is, not only, you know, independent in that sense, alone in that sense, but here she is looking after her 90-year-old grandmother. And that backstory is one that I hadn't really given deep, deep thought to until I was I was talking with someone uh, a couple of days ago. It was actually the, the writer who's helping to develop Fissure beyond the comic. And she was asking me these wonderful questions that drove me to really start to think about these thoughts. And so I'll be honest with you, Alana, I can't even begin to understand. I, I, I'm trying. I, I'm like I'm trying uh, in the last, especially the last couple weeks, <laughs> um, you know, being so far removed from activity here in Missoula, Montana, which is, you know, 65,000 people, predominantly more or less the same, um, you know, in terms of population diversity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to understand that and uh, what that might feel like. And I won't, I won't even begin to understand it, really, honestly. I, I don't think ever. Um, so, you know, in terms of Avery Lee, I just, I just want her, I guess I just want her to be, um, I want to just show that strength that she has, that resolve that she has, that's human, and it's not necessarily specific, you know, to her gender or 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 to her, um, you know, to her ethnic background. I just want her to show a strength and resolve that's important for her child, important for her for her partner to understand what she's capable of, and so what and what's going to be necessary for her to do in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is this sorry? I should say. And is this is this a this is like a a, a limited series, or is this a um ongoing as you have it? Well, it's it's only scheduled for four issues right now, so it's a limited series. Oh, a so okay. like mm-hmm. It's like curse, so it, you know, beginning, middle, and an end. And uh, I I, I kind of want to. That's kind of my usual uh, take. Enormous is the only ongoing I've ever written, but it's finite as well. And so it has an ending. It's just going to take a little bit longer to get there. Um, but <laughs> I got I got a lot of stories I want to tell, and you know, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, a lot of stories people want to read. And so, for right now, four issues. Gotcha. Uh, so we we haven't touched on it. Um, kind of, you know, we we ask a lot of the the creators who come on the show. Um, for folks who are interested in, in getting into comics, like how did you actually start off creating comics? Well, let's see, uh, reading or creating? Uh, well, both. I actually will go with both. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, so I was interested to hear the, the influences and what people grew up reading. Yeah, that was about 1981. Um, and uh, I was probably, uh, what, 12 years old, roughly, um, ish. And, uh, Went over to a friend's house. He had a big old binder full of comics, and I didn't, you know, they, they, they were, those were things that my dad brought home from San Francisco and on the bus when I was sick, you know, and he would throw them on the bed and say, here you go, you know, and he would just pick up something at the newsstand. But uh, when I had gone over to my friend's house, riding our bikes around one day, and we went over to his house, and, and there was this big gigantic binder, and it was full of Marvel comics, and it was... You know, John Byrne and um, Chris Claremont's X-Men. You know, it was Kirby with Captain America and Submariner and, you know, all these beautiful books. And something about it that moment kind of clicked. And, you know, the next week it was down to the Rexall with 35 cents in my pocket to buy 
you know, the next issue of whatever was on the stands at the drugstore. So that's kind of how I started, and it and it and it never really ended. And it kept, you know, off and on, um, you know, different times where uh, responsibilities or economics came into play where I couldn't necessarily read comics, uh, but uh, more or less off and on all my entire life. And then in uh, the late 90s, I moved to Seattle to work at Amazon and uh, Amazon.com coming out of uh, school. And uh, I was a late graduate. It took me a while to get through. And um, anyway, I uh, was working. Uh, I'd go around the corner at lunchtime and, and grab books. And I I noticed how radically different they were from, you know, 10 years before. And so started buying powers and uh, uh, I think shortly thereafter The Walking Dead and um, just any number of books that were you know grabbing my attention um, and um, that kind of did it around uh, 2003 we moved here to Missoula, Montana after I left Amazon after about four, four and a half years on a burnout pace and so we wanted to kind of like get our lives back in order my wife and I and um, we came here to this to this place which was smaller and manageable and the demands weren't, you know, 17-hour work days. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I just said, you know what, I I want to, I want to, I want to make comics. It's, it's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I want to, I want to make comics, but I couldn't, I can't draw. Not, not at that level. Um, I can doodle well enough to satisfy my four-year-old. But, um, and I, I wasn't much of a writer either, and so I started um, kind of using the skills I picked up from, you know, my tech background, and started creating websites for uh, Brian Michael Bendis and, and Robert Kirkman, and um, for their for their properties as well for Powers and The Walking Dead. Both of them yeah. were very generous and gave me opportunity. Um, you know, Robert Kirkman at one point, you know, offered. Uh, to allow me to do the Survivor's Guide, which was a four-issue collection, I think, of the first 74 issues detailing the characters of the book, kind of like the old, you know, Marvel handbooks. And then... Um, yeah. Brian oh, Bennett. funny. Yeah. 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 And Brian Bennett did the same. So uh, th- those were kind of my first forays, I guess, I attempts at writing. Before that, I, you know, with the websites, um, I was visiting, you know, their site forums and, and, you know, their, their message boards and various people were pitching their books on the, on those boards like Jinx World for Brian Michael Bendis. And uh, Nick Spencer was pitching his first book yep. and yep. he needed a logo and a, uh, and a cover. And so I sat down and made a logo and a cover and I sent it back on, posted it on the board and he went, Hey, I'll, I'll try that. <laughs> See what the publisher thinks. And that turned out to be uh, Jim Valentino at Image and Shadowline. And so I started making logos, doing design for books, one after the next. And Nick was kind enough to, to give me, you know, pretty much every opportunity for each of his forthcoming books. And he had about four or five lined up at the time. So started writing those survivors, you know, the, the handbooks, and started doing design. And after a few years, a um, couple years, about three, uh, or a little bit more, uh, you know, Jim Valentino said, you know, what do you want to do in this industry? What do you really want to do? And I said, well, I, I want to write. And uh, he said, okay, all right, pitch me. <laughs> and I said, well, p- please don't reject me. Help me develop it. <laughs> so so don't just say no, please help me. You know, and so he was he was actually kind enough to, to want to do that and put up with me. And, um, he uh, he allowed me to pitch Normus, and he he liked it uh, surprisingly enough. Um, he just helped me kind of shape it into something a little bit more uh, localized, as he put it, more manageable, not so epic and sprawling. You know, I was ready to come out of the gate and write Why the Last Man, and you know all that. And he just helped me uh, shape it, and that was it. That was the beginning. That was the first. Enormous was the first in two thousand. Let's see, 12, I think, 10, 12, 10. I think we started in 2010. It came out in 2012. 
That was the beginning. It's amazing how much of today's comic world either spun out of the Bendis boards um, <laughs> or, or Valentino. Like they, they really have both been kind of a springboard for so many of today's like most prolific and known writers. It's, it's fascinating how things have kind of shifted yeah. in that way. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I love that forum. You know what I mean? Like the, the idea yeah. of engagement like that, with whether it was with Kirkman or Bendis, or and it wasn't them. You know, it was it was the, the community that swirled around all that. That was extraordinary. Uh, and you know, the twelve year old me was like, "Where was this?" You know, when I was a kid, <laughs> I desperately wanted to break it up. Yeah. Where was this? Um, but boy, I'm sure glad I stumbled into it. You know, all those years later, uh, because yes, you're right. That's that's where a lot of, you know, sort of the groundswell of current, I think current, a lot of current creators have kind yeah. of come out of. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's so many conversations where you hear, like, Bendis boards come up. Um, it's yeah. one where I, I kind of wish that someone had downloaded and saved it all. Because it really feels <laughs> like it's just, well, I mean, it's like a huge well, piece of comic history that should have been archived because, you said, like, everyone was there. Oh, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I have the website on my hard drive. I just don't have those boards. If I had those boards, it'd be like having, you know, I'd be Brainiac at this point. I'd be like comic book Brainiac. But, Do you, you know, remember you said yeah, this, that was, on this post? <laughs> I just, you know, that, that that time period was great. And, you know, I think more than anything, the most, the, the, the most inval- invaluable byproduct of all that experience um, was working with Jim Valentino because it wasn't just it was the hardest thing I've ever done. He is a you know, he's he's very strong, you know, in what he wants, in, in what he wanted for Shadowline. And um but learn I learned how to put a comic book together. That was the key. It wasn't just, oh here's the cover, here's the logo, or here's the script. I learned how to assemble a book, start to finish. And that was like, to me, it was holy grail kind of knowledge. It was invaluable, and it served me now for years. Um, and it certainly, it's been applicable to my experience with Vault. Um, and so, you know, that probably that one experience right there the, over those years, those four and a half, five years, um, invaluable, completely. You know, working with someone, and, and you were kind of coming close to the hour, so you don't don't want to hold you too long. Um, sure. So I, I I guess the final question would be, is, you know, working with a legend like like Jim Valentino, who's someone that I, you know I grew up reading his stuff. Um, what what is what would be the biggest thing he imparted on you as far as like knowledge for creating comics? Oh man, he had so many that um, I find my you know back then. As uh, as a young comic book person, as an old as an older guy, <laughs> um, but as a young comic book person, it was it was hard to understand the the types of criticisms that he would offer. You know, the types of feedback. Now I find myself repeating those same things. So, you know, Jim was really um, smart about understanding the intersection of art and commerce. Um, he was under. He he understood the the need for artfulness, but how how uh, how a story could could not be subtle to the point of losing its readership. And that was part of it. From the practical business sense, you know, literally he was he was handing over. Here's a pagination guide. You know, here's how you take your cover, your spine, your back. All the end, everything in between, the indicia, the titles, the credits, the chapter separations. Here's the page count. Here's how it goes to print. Here's the, the types of files you need. The business of the business was easily the, the most valuable thing. And that, that can't be summarized in any one statement. That's just like yeah. grind. That's, you know, weeks and days at a time of working. The amazing thing about uh, Jim was, um, and still is, um, is you know, send him an email and he sends you a response. He responded to every creator. He told he told the truth. It was hard to accept for me <laughs> a lot of times, but um, you know, now I look at it and go, 
oh, wow, yeah, that's how you run a business. It's hard. It's not easy. And it's not always fun. Um, it's incredibly rewarding when that book is done. Um, but, you know, that was, it's like any other industry, like any other industry, it's a business. It has to maintain that, um, that you know, rigor. Or, or it, it simply stop publishing. Um, and so that was, that was amazing. But, you know, more than anything, I'll always remember that, you know, Jim talking to me about the intersection of art and commerce and how, you know, there's, there's got to be a balance in there. And you have to find that balance in your story. You have to find it in, in, in your readership so that you can tell the story you want to tell. You have to survive. You, you have to, to make the book, you know, marketable uh, so that you can tell the story. So it will get sold. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had yeah. you for the hour and appreciate it. Um, before we wrap up, uh, we always like to give our guests the opportunity to kind of pitch folks as to uh, the various comics they've got out and uh, where they can be found online. So the floor is yours to, to do all that. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, invite uh, everybody to uh, check out you know, Vault Comics, and um, I, you know, within two weeks we'll see Heathen number one hit stands, and um, Heathen is by Natasha Alterisi, and it is it is wonderful. I hope you know, uh, seeing seeing the reaction already to it has been so strong. I hope that everybody gets a chance to check that out, and I hope you know that everyone's taking a look at um, the remaining titles that are coming throughout the year from Vault. Uh, Karma Police will be up next, and Powerless, Colossi, and the list goes on from there. So I hope everyone is definitely looking out for Vault, um, and they will see that those books are definitely, uh, you know, quality storytellers across the board, uh, quality creative teams. Um, so, but if anyone wants to find me, they can come, you know, talk to me on Twitter. Um, I'm at. Um, uh, let's see. I'm at the enormous comic on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook as Tim Daniel, um, and uh, thebigpicturecomics.com is my website where uh, folks can take a look at the books um, that I've authored or co-authored, and you know maybe even see things that they might not see elsewhere on the web there. And so um, I hope folks come uh, come find me there. Excellent, and much appreciated. Thanks for coming on the show. It was great having you, mm-hmm. and uh, thanks, thanks for talking about the new series. Thank, thank you both for having me. Thanks for spotlighting Fisher. Really appreciate it, guys. And, um, thank you, Lana. Thank you, Brett. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. I'm looking thank forward you. to the, the second issue and seeing where it goes. Awesome, definitely. All right, thanks. Have, have a great time. A great night. All right, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. All right. Uh, so yeah, definitely a very first issue, uh, interesting first issue, and I think I like that mm-hmm. perfect example of a, a comic series that um, mixes well p- politics and comics, and it's right there in front of you. Um, there's there's no Indeed. subtlety about the, the comic at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so uh, next week we have an awesome guest. If you want to announce that one. Next week, oh my gosh, it is. Next yes. week, we'll be joined by DC Comics writer Steve Orlando, who's the writer of Apollo and Midnighter. Sorry, Midnighter and Apollo. I got that backwards. Um, <laughs> and he's writing three different Justice League of America spinoff titles and JLA and Supergirl. And basically, he's writing everything at DC. So yes. I'm super excited. He's been on the show before to talk about his indie work. Um, which has always been outstanding. Um, and he's going to be back with us tomorrow, uh, next week to talk about some of his real big series that I'm sure most of you guys are probably checking out. So yep. we're going to talk about gay superheroes and writing for DC. It's going to be great. It's the Justice League of America episode. We're good. I'm going to have to figure out something to do about the whole America thing and having some fun about it. Um, oh, yeah. We'll go from there. <laughs> Uh, so we'll yeah, see you guys next week. Awesome. Yes. For those who came in late, want to listen to the episode again, uh, share it with friends, 
whatever. It will be up on iTunes in probably like an hour or two. Uh, so you can catch it there. And if you are getting it on iTunes, please subscribe to us and rate the show. Give it a nice five star. We appreciate that. It will also be up on Stitcher in probably about the same time. And then if you uh, want to catch it in other ways, the uh, uh, radio show will be up on SoundCloud tomorrow, Tuesday, um, at some point during the day, hopefully more towards the, the, the morning. It will be up on Graphic Policy later in the afternoon where you can go and check it out there. So uh, listen again, share it around, much appreciated. And if you are into comics, which if you're listening to this, you probably are, you can go check us out at graphicpolicy.com or on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, all at Graphic Policy, nice and consistent. And Alana, why don't you tell folks where they can find you and, and plug the this, this stuff that you plugged in the beginning of the show. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter all the damn time. Uh, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And again, uh, if you're looking to get involved in uh, standing in solidarity with immigrants in your community, you should text ROAD, R-O-A-D, to 52886. Yes. Uh, So everyone go get involved, uh, get active, do some good in community, help uh, fight the bullshit that's going on, be a part of the Rebel Alliance, uh, and take a stand for good. We're telling you to go do that. Uh, that's your big yeah. takeaway. Go, go be good. Do good. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening. Until next week, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky. <laughs>